You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. This Digital Noise episode also has a video version for subscribers at the brown coat level or above. Become a subscriber and get the extended video version. For another digital noise bum, with bum, your bum, host bum, bum, bum. Christopher Cerulean Cox. I am saying that right. I've always wondered how you say cerulean. It's what? one of those things no one ever says out loud. It, it's another word for it's, it's another type. It's a type of blue. Have you noticed okay. every time I do this, my like joke name is some play on blue? No, I do because don't. Blu-rays. I never like realized that. that. Oh my god, that makes so much more sense. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, okay, yeah, cool, cool. Maybe that's like a yeah. geek thing. Anyways. Yeah, and no, I, and Aaron always Papa Bear, the Papa little. Bear. Although now that I know that shit's going down, I might start changing it and like picking some oh, random god. like kind of subtle thing that you won't get for like six episodes, and then all of a sudden you'll go wait. Oh, fuck you, Aaron. Really? That's what it means? It's adorable that you'd think I would think about something like that for that long. <laughs> Be like, what is it? I've got like all this like behind me. We're right off camera. You can't see is all the photos of the yes. screenshots with, with, with red yarn. yarn tying them together with thumbtacks as I try and figure we're, it out. We're going to come in one day. You're going to have the tie and the white shirt and just be leaned up against it going. <sighs> <laughs> Exactly. No, not exactly. That's not going to happen. Jeez. Well, we are here to talk about Blu-rays and DVDs and 4Ks, and we have our work cut out for this week because we actually do have a lot of stuff. Thanks to Focus Features putting out a 10-movie set. Now, we're not going to go, don't worry, we're not going to go wildly, super ridiculously deep on everything in there because we don't have, uh, we're not going to split up one set into seven shows. But that's really good, too, because at least two of those titles I watched in the last two weeks and don't remember a ton about so <laughs> that's fair that's fair but we're not going to start out with that we're going to somewhat finish up with that but we're going to start off with one of the most anticipated titles to go to 4k uh, that is just now coming out and that is stanley kubrick's full metal jacket i suspect we're going to be seeing all the kubrick's make the translation of yeah, 4k big time. kubrick's films tend to be the first among the first to make the upgrades to any new generation of thing because they're also visually impressive you want to you want to do that thing and full metal jacket i mean obviously they did apocalypse now first because that's the better vietnam movie sorry but (laughs) you know full metal jacket is still a classic or at least half of it is yeah so i've 
saw Full Metal Jacket back in college, which, which that that's what everyone who goes through film school or journalism school, any kind of artistic at all, you eventually sit your ass down and you watch 2001 A Space Odyssey, you watch uh, Full Metal Citizen Jacket, Kane. Citizen Kane, the, the great American movies. Um, and this is the first time I've seen it since then. And you're right, Apocalypse Now is definitely the better movie. This This was almost less a movie than it is just a statement on war like mm-hmm. it's it's the closest thing to a major big budget massively produced in theaters everywhere art film that i've seen in a long time it's two movies really and it's almost irrelevant the characters some of the a, few, a very few of the characters cross over into the second half i mean it wouldn't matter if they did or not yeah, it, it, it doesn't frankly. matter because the characters don't matter really in this yeah, I mean, they do it more so in the first part, I would say, which is, yeah. you know, I mean, you've seen, whether you even have seen this movie or not, you've seen images from this first part where Vincent D'Onofrio famously kind of broke wide by playing this character in here, Leonard Lawrence, and it's boot camp, and the the drill instructor also, just as if not more iconic than, than Leonard, or they called him Gomer Pyle, who's like sort of a, a guy who has trouble. He's a big guy. Can't help it that he's overweight, no matter how much he exercises. And he's not that bright. And the gunnery sergeant that, who's in charge of them, but played legendarily by Lee Ermey, who just, you know, doubles down on treating the guy like shit till he literally goes crazy. And both those characters in here are so iconic that i almost feel bad i you know i guarantee you people go up to literally the lead character in this movie matthew modine all the time and go oh i didn't realize you were in full metal jacket (laughs) well i mean you are you are not wrong it it is the movie that launched two different careers because arlie ermy did so well in this and was so iconic that i don't think he has another performance in him and he had a robust and varied career after this he just did the exact same shtick over and over again and we were always there for it and (laughs) and vincent d'onofrio has ended up being kind of a low-key legendary actor who turns in some really batshit weird but also really amazing performances he's he's one of those guys who even when he's in a bad movie it's he does a good job but quite frankly neither of those people really continue in the movie beyond the first like 45 minutes uh it's the training segment which is very much a statement on how turning americans into soldiers or people into soldiers dehumanizes them and then you shift into the war which (laughs) which is almost like a series of vignettes more than it even is because they divide it into part one and part two part one is one solid story the training and that's the part that you're like like, everyone goes is great part two is like scenes from a war you know it's not till the very end of it where there's an extended protracted sequence with a sniper that's got them pinned down and them trying to decide what to do about it that it really feels like it's developing into its own story well it's not really an action movie because like that's the closest thing you have to an action sequence in the movie and it's it's a a squad of guys not a squad it's a whole division or shit rewind i don't know i was <laughs> it, never in the military it's some what amount of people <laughs> like 12 dudes something like um, that whatever you call that <laughs> a single person and so like it it doesn't fall into the traditional tropes of the war movie but 
almost every scene in this movie, whether you've watched the film or not, you've seen. Like, the opening of the Vietnam segment is the uh, Vietnamese prostitute walking up and doing the me fucky sucky long time, which just, that has infected popular culture. It's everywhere. It's been referenced in everything. It's... Sure. It's weird how truly iconic this movie is, and Kubrick shoots the hell out of it. For all that we're kind of downplaying the fact that it doesn't really have a story, it's an enthralling movie that pulls you in and you can't look away from from the second it begins to the second it ends. It's gorgeously shot. It is. It's just that it it changes. It seems to change its goal too often, and and it doesn't really have its eye on any one specific set of goalposts. I mean, while Apocalypse Now was also a big series of separate scenes that eventually coalesced in the editing room into a something that felt like a movie, somehow everything in that movie feels like it's from the same movie, where you can't say that for this film. It's got, it reminds me, and this is a weird thing to say, of like Army of Darkness. Because Army of Darkness isn't really a great, movie compared to the first two evil dead films you best watch the the most (laughs) but the most iconic lines and single moments from any of the evil dead movies are from army of darkness and this is like like for kubrick this is far from kubrick's best film it's not even in the running but some of the most if not the most iconic kubrick moments of all time are from this film well it's you have to start to ask yourself, are you watching this movie for the story or for the experience of watching it? If you're one of those people who hungers for a really deep, gripping story with fascinating characters, you may not be as into this movie after the first 45 minutes. But if you're here for the meta text that he puts into it and just watching these amazing visual set pieces and single horizontal painting camera shots, just... Just sit back and go with it, and you can have a good time. The the transfer was gorgeous. Like, this movie looks great. One of the only issues I had, even though the transfer looks so good, was that uh, for being such a important movie that has kind of shaped a little bit of how movies were made after it, there really isn't much of any special features at all on this. It's pretty barren. Like, yes, the transfer is good, but... I kind of feel like if you're going to release something like Apocalypse Now or like Full Metal Jacket or 2001 A Space Odyssey at this point, even if you do have a visual upgrade, you need to put stuff on there. You need to have something about the behind the scenes, how he made it, the historical significance. Like there's, what, 60 years of past research into this. You've got to be able to get some of it. You know why they don't, right? Because, all right. Now, 4K is a relatively new format. And despite the fact sure. that 8K TVs exist, no one is buying them, partially yeah. because most people have said your eye literally can't tell the difference. It's at that point. So, I mean, with video games, yes, but not so much with movies. So they want to make the most of any cycle of any given format. So whenever they put out stuff in a new format, they almost always launch with the version that is kind of bare bones with no new extras. Fair. Why? So you'll buy it again yep. in a few years when they re-release the exact same transfer, 
but now with new bonus features. And they're going to do that at the same time as this massive $8,000 entire filmography box set, and then yeah. you can buy them individually. Or in this, Yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're it's right. how it's the cycle of these things. I mean, I think this transfer isn't even one of the essential transfers on 4K. It's all right. I mean, the Blu-ray they put out of this before was great. They did a great job upgrading it. This isn't wildly better than that particular version, I thought. Uh, like, super, super noticeably better. Um, and even the uh, DTS HD 5.1 Master Audio put here is just a re-encoding from an earlier version yeah. for the Blu-ray. So this, this isn't really wildly exciting. I mean, it does come as an option with the film's original mono audio mix, which I guess somebody wants that. So if you want to hear what it sounded like on DVD, okay. <laughs> Not sure what the work put in there was, but you're right. This is like overall, you know, I mean, if you're a huge fan of this movie, you want the upgrade. Well, if uh, if but, it's a huge fan, you already own it. And you, you're probably going to be cool waiting until maybe yeah. they do it again. I mean, they'll definitely do it again and a proper release. No yeah. question. Uh, I mean, this comes with the Blu-ray with all the with the the recycled ones from the base blu-ray but i think there were better editions even of that anyway let's move on we don't want to spend all day talking about this re-release let's move on to something that is you know what not actually technically new it came out in 2012 but only now is getting a home release which is this weird indie crime comedy called 200,000 dirty and yeah it, it is a hard to classify exactly what this movie exactly was trying to be like i i couldn't make up my mind at any point if it was really was more focused on being funny or dramatic or what but i'm not even sure if i came out of it deciding if i liked it or not but you've got rob played by mark grinfield and manny played by coolio who i didn't realize was balding to this degree but holy shit who are hey, age comes for us all uh, yeah, it does indeed. But uh, he, he's kept the weird, like, you know, the, I don't even know what you call him, the, the, his distinct hairstyle thing with the, where he's got the braids that kind of stick up straight in the air and go everywhere. He's kept that part. He's just got a huge bald part in the center. But they are the sales force at a mattress store, like a, a crappy, a shitty showroom. strip mall mattress store that nobody ever goes to. Exactly. And so they hang out there like they're the cast of Clerks 30 years later, you know, like smoking cigarettes, doing drugs, hitting on girls, being annoying, trying not to do their work as much as they can. A terrible boss. But uh, he hires like a new girl there and everyone's like, what's up, baby? And, uh, you know, she actually makes friends with the guys there, which is kind of surprising. But it turns out that she has something else to sell. And that is a scheme to these friends saying, look, I have an ex-husband, uh, Antonio, played by Spencer Rowe, and he's a dick, and he's trying to hurt me. I think he's going to try and kill me, and I need you to kill him, and I can get a $200,000 life insurance payout, and we'll all split it. And this is really... <sighs> I kept thinking of films that played this type of comedy a lot broader, like Dumb and Dumber, See, uh, most obviously, and going... This film just didn't, couldn't decide which way to go because the characters are stupid and unlikable, but they never really go to the point of being 
you know, cartoonish, so but they're never realistic enough to be likable. Right. Here's what it was for me. I, 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 I found a rhythm that made sense to me about halfway through. Mm-hmm. This is a Cullen Brothers movie with out the precision and without the Cullen's flair for comedic writing. Yeah. Like it, it is a a little slice of a bunch of stupid people making mistakes that lead to death and destruction where no one really wins or gets what they want. And usually like with the Cullens, their writing is so whip crack smart and the editing is so quick and fast and the shots are so effective that you just you go with it, and it's this fun little dark comedy where you're watching people fail. Um, but they don't have either the writing to tie it all together and make it have meaning, and their editing and shooting style, it isn't quick enough or flary, or not flary, um, is pretty enough as the Coens are. And so it, it ends up feeling like a naturalistic Cullen Brothers movie that, that, that just didn't quite have the writing there to be what they wanted it to be. Wow, you're a lot kinder to this than I am. Um, well, like, the, the end effect of that is that it's kind of boring, yeah. and the characters don't really work. There's a few scenes that are really funny. There's a running gag with one of them accidentally being involved in a weird sex thing at a hotel, and the person who set it up is his girlfriend, and they didn't know. And like the movie opens with that and ends up kind of being this through line throughout that every time that cropped up, I legitimately was I laughed and I enjoyed it and I was kind of into the story, but for it being a movie that's like an hour and a half long, it feels like it's two hours. Yeah, no, it does. Uh, I I think the actors here were all like likable as actors and they're all doing good work, but the script and the director don't seem to be in sync with what kind of movie that this, this is, and so the actors yeah. don't seem to know how to play it. Uh, I mean, it's not that the script is bad per se; it's just this is how y'all want to do this thing? And it has a really, it has a very like, yeah, no shit ending that's supposed to be like, aha, but you didn't see that coming. It's like literally everyone saw that coming. It's a disconnect. (laughs) The, the writing and the shooting style would work for a different movie. And Mm -hmm. then the movie that they wanted to make would have worked really well with a different script and shooting style, but together it just doesn't ever mesh. Yeah. No, I 100% agree. It, this one was one that started off kind of winning me over because of it had a sort of like grown-up clerks feel to it. Yeah. Like, hey, 45-year-old clerks. And I was like, oh, this could be kind of fun, actually. And it is fun for a little while, but the further it goes into trying to, you know, the further it gets Cohenish, the less it works. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Well, let's go on to our next one then, which is a new Arrow release, Ivan's XTC, ecstasy, but spelled like the old English band XTC. <laughs> this is a weird little movie that yeah, offers two different options as ways to watch it. And anytime something is like, well, you can watch this version that's 1080p that is, you know, is looks the way a movie is generally supposed to, or you could watch this one that was shot at 3 billion frames a second and will actually make you sucked into it and be part of the movie and you'll be trapped there forever in your own personal hell then i don't pick that version i, I did uh, it's perfect <laughs> did you <laughs> yeah okay. i did well because so, so they talk about how 
Okay, we're going to get a little bit into the movie's meta text. Uh, the movie is about a Hollywood producer who is on the cusp of like landing his Tom Cruise-esque star played by Peter Weller, which is kind of delightful. Um, <clears throat> and basically, he dies of leukemia? I want to say, or lung cancer, and like the opening not, not the star, of the movie. not the, the star, not, not the star, the, the producer, actual producer, which played by and, Dan, Danny, the legendary Danny Houston. And the movie is basically kind of telling the story of his life as it leads up to the event, but it's very much a movie about the real seedy underbelly of Hollywood and like how everyone's pervy and does drugs and is a prick and is trying to win over each other. Like, like it's, it's one of those movies, but so they shot it at this 30 frames per second with, to make it look like video because it was supposed to be part of the, the feel of the movie. And and yeah. I will admit, like I, I watched it on video and, and anytime a movie like, if you have something like The Hobbit where they do this, I'm typically with you. I, I'll watch the one that looks like a film. Yeah. But anytime they have something that's shot on video and that's part of the aesthetic, like uh, you have the new Michael Mann movies, you know, I always watch it that way because it's the way it was intended, even if it doesn't look right sometimes. Mm. Um, I'm yeah. looking at you, his uh, FBI story in the 1930s. You were terrible. But <laughs> I think the aesthetic really works for this. Like, it, it it goes along with the meaning of the movie. Kind of like we were talking about 200,000 Dirty not making sense. It made sense to me. And this is all shot kind of guerrilla style. There's a lot of handheld camera roving around stuff. This definitely doesn't have the feeling. Of, this has the feeling of something that was like shot in a week. Yeah, I don't I don't know the, the facts behind how uh, that particular information, but it was definitely, it was considered originally a Dogma 95 film. You know, one of those God, ones that, that makes was, so much it makes sense. so much sense, right? But but it automatically is breaking rules left and right of Dogma ninety five agreement. So you're like, oh, okay, well, I guess it's not. I mean, just the fact that it has celebrities in it means, well, it's disqualified. It's yeah. But to be fair, it was like twenty seconds after they came up with Dogma ninety five, the people who came up with it started breaking the rules of it. So or breaking the waves, as you might say. Uh, sorry, in joke there. You know, I don't dislike Ivan's ecstasy. I really, really like Danny Houston in this, who gets a rare chance to play a, you know, a villain who is the primary character in the film. He's the one, he's the star of the show. It really gets to go in depth. And usually he's kind of playing more sort of chewing the scenery, but cliched villains in a lot of things even in good movies often yeah. he's playing kind of a cliched villain so it's interesting to see him given a, a little bit more time but there's nothing surprising going on here in the story i no. mean i'm kind of surprised this got as good reviews as it did because i was like oh i tend to like these sort of like inside baseball hollywood movies and this one other than filming it cheaply and guerrilla style didn't really have a lot new to offer yeah you're not wrong at all. It, it's everything that is interesting about this movie. We've seen done a hundred times by now. Yeah. Uh, it's all old hat. And, and like, this is a baby face Danny Houston. I'm pretty sure this came out a while ago. Originally, maybe this is one of those things where um, it's lesser with the benefit of hindsight. When this yeah. came out, like, holy shit. I didn't know Hollywood was like that. It was we all 2000, know 20 uh, years ago. Yeah. So, but we already oh, had yeah. the player at that point, and you're like, anything after that, you're like, well, you better be a goddamn good movie if you're making this kind of movie, because the player kind of plateaued that sort of story. 
So nothing new, but I enjoyed it too. Like I, I had a good time watching this. Actually, I was convinced you were going to hate it coming in because it what? feels what? The, feels it, like a movie. It I'd feels hate. like one of those that are like slower and more meandering. They don't really have a lot of direction and they just kind of spend a lot of time here. And I guess we're going to go spend some time over here and. Peter Weller is gonna like smoke or is gonna inhale coke off of this lady's vagina and like, this, like just just it just bounces back and forth and it feels like the kind of movie you would be going, oh my god, come on, let's just move on. There's a lot of like people who you're like, oh, who is that? I recognize them. Who are like you know not huge stars, but you know they're people who like at one point were in front of the camera and then moved behind the camera type of thing and. You know, this is obviously like a film made by a collection of friends. Yeah. I don't know why they made it because it doesn't look like it was a hell of a lot of fun. Per <laughs> you know se. what it is? <laughs> yeah. Arrow puts out these movies occasionally, and they're always horror films. And we, you and I sit here and go, you know, I really respect what Arrow does, but this movie, like, yeah. this is the one you picked. I and mean, th th this is one of those Arrow movies. It's just not a horror where you're going like, this you one? know, there's nothing wrong with it, but. <laughs> Okay, I guess this is the one you wanted to put out now. Cool. Well, there are the typical amount of Arrow extras, which is to say a decent amount of stuff. There's also the extended producer's cut, which is a considerably longer, Which, uh, but the extended scenes cut out the subtitles for some reason. Well, and they even said, like, the longer... Like, they explained that the director basically didn't like the longer cut, and mm -hmm. it's some, somebody basically doing a fuck you and, like, recutting it, and so I, I didn't watch that one, I'll admit. Uh, so the producer and co-writer, Lisa Enos, here has this crazy self-promotional video on here that reminds me a lot of that one that the what was the name of the, the dude who was like a child star who put who turned into a crazy Christian and then put out like a home video to promote himself, like in the pool and with a guitar and shit. You're like, it feels like that. Like, what are we watching here? It's like 30 minutes of her like, you are know, you I think I'm great. Uh, I think I'm, a, here's me driving. Here's me Wait. walking through my mansion. Here's me swimming in my pool. Are you talking about the kid from Two and a Half Men? No, it was okay. uh, Kirk Cameron. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, you know enough. what I'm talking about. <laughs> I got There's that. There's a Q&A uh, at the Egyptian Theater after the premiere here with Bernard Rose, Lisa Enos, Danny Houston, Peter Weller, and Which... Adam Krenzman from a 2018 screening. So not from the premiere, but from a rescreening, presumably attached to when they were playing, when they re- configured it re remixed it to re-release here there's archival interviews there's extended party sequence outtakes 41 and a half fucking minutes of them jesus christ does anyone need this much of ivan's ecstasy and there's an audio commentary with lisa enos and richard wollstonecraft which plays only with the extended producer's version and there's an insert booklet but yeah this is there's somebody out there. I feel like there's somebody out there who's like, oh, so excited for this. But that's because they probably are friends with half the people who made it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's me. You're, you're not wrong. You're not I wrong. Wanna, I don't want to be snobby here. But, you know, I am. So it comes off that way. So <laughs> let's move on to an Arrow releases that I thought were much more up my alley, which is first off, there's a twofer Japanese set of the not as much talked about often style of Japanese thriller, the businessman thriller, if you will. Now, Kurosawa, I think arguably his best film is one of the, the business, the famous Japanese business films. 
but uh, I believe it was Ikiru, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mixing up titles in my head. Uh, that was the dream. No, no. You're probably right. I'm I don't remember. Now. I have it. I just don't remember. But this is not that. Okay. This is. God damn it. You're throwing me off here. This is a two set of Black Test Car and the Black Report, which I believe it was. The connection is largely like Black Test Car came out first from director Yasuzo Masumura, who did a lot of pushing the boundaries of what was considered good taste films, most notably Moju, the Blind Beast. And he did one of the Hanzo the Razor movies. He did? Okay, cool. Well, I didn't realize that one. But he uh, made this movie, Black Test Car, in 1962, to attack, basically, cutthroat Japanese business, which when Japan was turning totally, fuck you, capitalism. Yeah, they they turned their martial prowess towards the idea of business as a war field, and took yeah. over half the world <laughs> and it, it's about this motor car company tiger motor car company who find out that spies from their competing company yamato have been sneaking spies into their testing grounds and have witnessed a crash of their pro- uh, intentional crash to you know do testing on it of their new prototype car and they're like how does this this other company have this much information on our new car so they basically set up a counter spy force uh, counter espionage force to get in there and check them. And it's, you know, I mean, it's, it is a spy movie, basically. It's just the, the uh, stakes are banal by spy movie See, standards. I, I, I framed it as Yakuza movies. I mean, they are very much like the businessman's Yakuza. Um, but in the special features, they talk about how he wanted to make these crime films that were about people who were considered to be not criminals. <clears throat> and so, like, you have these people who, in the beginning of the movie, they're not necessarily corrupt or vile. They're, they're just, like, kind of sneaky and spy And we we track them as they descend into prostitution. One guy convinces his girlfriend slash fiance to sleep with another guy to steal information. Somebody ends up dying. They beat the shit out of a few people. Uh, Basically, it's this really intense gang movie about competing businesses trying to release the exact same car within a month of each other. And yeah, it. It actually worked a lot for me. This first one, Black Test Car. Like, like I really vibed with that um, treating business people as horribly corrupt, vile individuals that they went with. Uh, it carried through really interesting. The story was enthralling. I dug the moral quandaries that the characters were into. And it ended as happily as a movie like this possibly could. I mean, it, it very much was an older style of filming uh, but I don't know. I was into this. I I have mixed feelings about this. I did ultimately enjoy this, but there's a reason why this isn't like oft crossing the lips of people yeah. discussing the history of Japanese film. It's a minor film to be sure. And it's interesting, but it was a massive hit in Japan, apparently that went on to this company, the Dai company, filmed a whole bunch of movies that were, had black in the title that were expose films. How do things really work in this industry, including Black Parking Lot and Black Super Express about the new bullet trains and the corruption about track laying for that. Which, <laughs> I mean, which that, that, that sounds very Dai. They're the ones who put out Gamera. Yeah. And I can see them going like, wait, this worked? Make 50 of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, they follow in this set, you have one of these other ones called The Black Report, which definitely is more of a de noir detective take on things than it is a, a as you said, samurai or, or uh, Yakuza. Yakuza type thing. And I, I also liked this mm-hmm. one. I didn't think it was quite as strong as the the black test car in here. I mean, it's, I don't know. You go ahead and tell the story of this uh, one. So basically, this is like you said, it's a detective story. It begins with the police at the crime scene. A man has been murdered, probably, um, by getting his head bashed in. You know, that's not <laughs> something you do to yourself. Um, and they're Generally trying not, to no. find out who killed this man. And it follows the lead detective who's kind of a, a lawyer slash detective. I admit I was I don't know enough about Japanese the Japanese legal system to where I was like, I don't know what his job actually is, but I'm here for it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but like uh, he talks to the wife who may or may not have been having an affair. She was. Um, and then he also talks to like the mistress of the character and it just follows him as he does his routine investigation and then starts to unravel another layer and another layer and another layer. But, but instead of really going deep conspiracy, like these movies tend to do, which is fun. I'll admit it kind of stays at that banal level of just everyday criminal, uh, prosecution. And so I, I didn't actually like this movie. I thought it was a little too slow for me. It didn't have the hook, of corporate espionage that uh, the black test car did. And so this right. was just a kind of ho-hum legal drama. I mean, it's still, both films are about people with just regular jobs to some extent who are giving up their, who are morally culpable because of decisions they make in their somewhat banal day-to-day life. In this case, a little more exciting by definition because they're policemen, I guess, but it still kinds to be kind of like about that sort of thing, like, oh, you... Uh, it's a morality. Bureaucracy. Right? Yeah, exactly. And it's not as... You're right. It's not as interesting as Black Test Card, to be sure. It's just a little slower. It has a stronger start, I thought. Agreed. Like, oh, it's a murder. And it's it's kind of filmed cool, but I don't know, man. Like, uh, both these are... Nothing I'm going to come back to, but I think anybody who's super into uh, the history of the expose Japanese film or even of just the businessman uh, Japanese films are going to want to see both of these. And there's a modest amount of bonus features here, including, you know, one of their people talking about the history of these type of films and about this director who did both of them, but... I wouldn't call either one of these essential. I would say if you're looking for the Japanese double feature to get from Arrow this week, instead it would probably be Graveyards of Honor, which is also wildly better known yes. film than either one of these. And the original film of this is from 1975. And the second one in the set is the remake of it by Takashi Miike in 2002. Original by Kinji Fukasaku. It's, I don't know, man. It's, I really liked the original of one of this. It's totally a 70s film. It's this guy is almost doing a Scorsese vibe. I mean, it's raw. Nobody is likable. The main character is a total piece of shit. 
I mean, like really, <laughs> and and eventually you kind of feel sorry for him a little bit, but that's why on the whole, that sense of style of rawness of seventies and the fact that at least at the, towards the end, you're like, well, it was like a, he was a wild animal. He had to be put down, but you know, dog's got to hunt, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an animal. What did you expect it to do? about this crazy Yakuza guy who just will not, is uncontrollable. Whereas Mike's adaptation makes him so utterly un- irredeemable that about halfway through, I was, I kind of just gave up on him. <laughs> I was like, I don't really care yeah. what happens to this it's guy. Like, I, I also wildly prefer the original. Um, Kenji, yeah. Fuku- I thought it was Kenji Fukasaki. I didn't know it was a U, but um, he... He's one of, he's not the, but he's one of the fathers of the Japanese gangster movie, the Yakuza film. Mm -hmm. Um, He did the Battle Without Honor or Humanity series. And takes place in the same basic time frame. It's shot very much in the same way. He very much was into this like docudrama, handheld, crazy camera movements. But also post war post world war two hiroshima japan uh like he clearly has this fascination with this era of time and he shoots it well if you liked the yeah. battle that honor or humanity series you are going to probably dig his graveyards of honor which which are both of these and, films are often held up as the very best mm-hmm. that the yakuza genre has to and, offer. and like you're right the character is an irredeemable person um but Kenji Fukasaki manages to focus more on the I, he puts more meaning into his movie is what it feels like. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas Takashi Miike, it's a Takashi Miike movie uh, to a point. So I actually saw it first. I wasn't sure how much rape was in that movie. Uh, if that was really <laughs> like the story or if that's just because it was a Miike movie. Um, it's really yeah. just the story. It's just that. Fukasaki will imply Mike will just show but it, it's it's everything turned up to 11 it's very much a Mike movie if you're into his gonzo outlandish violent just disreputable character movies his gangster films you'll probably enjoy it it's not quite as extreme as some of his more outlandish movies go no. but the, the problem I had with it is because it spends so much time kind of focused on specifically this one character you you expect there to be some kind of a logic like some kind of he's doing this because of this and really the guy is just a walking id who will at any instance do whatever he feels like it doesn't matter how long he's known you or how much he's scared of you like a big turn happens when his boss is handing him something and he thinks his boss is trying to kill him so he shoots him first so like for no reason he's just on the run now and later on somebody saves him from the police so he stabs him and it's just like there kept on being those moments where i would just i couldn't get into the character either and i stuck with it through the whole time but i i was rolling my eyes at every bad decision where at least the other one tells a good story even if it's a shit person Mikes gets so exaggerated and so graphic with the violence that it just doesn't really feel real. And the original one has a sense of like, oh, really wondering what's going to, how is this going to play out? You're kind of like, like, it's not overly hyperbolic and the character seems to at least be trying 
to not give in to his inner asshole at first for the first half of the film before like drugs and other things get control of him. I mean, he's never a good guy. Don't get me wrong. He's a shithead from the beginning. But the interesting thing is, why are, is the rest of the Yakuza putting up with this guy? Which is kind of the real plot of the yeah. movie. That is the arc. And that first movie, I mean, do you realize that guy's last movie, the guy who directed this, was Battle Royale? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was I was like, that's the movie he made no, before he died. You, like, I, was like, I was freaking out about this set because I'm a pretty big Mike fan. I've liked quite a few of his movies, even though he does go too yeah. far for me. And I love Kenji Fukasaki. Like, I have the whole, uh, like probably 15 of his movies. So nice. Yeah, he's a legend, no question. And this Arrow set has, with the original one, there's a, because two different discs. There's an audio commentary, brand new one by author and critic Mark Schilling. There's Like a Balloon, The Life of a Yakuza. I didn't watch it, but now with that title, I kind (laughs) of want to. There's a Portrait of Rage, an archival appreciation of Fukasaku, which I did watch and actually went, I kind of wish they had made this longer. Uh, on the set with Fukasaku, archival interview with assistant director Kenichi Oguri, and then there's trailer and image gallery, uh, and then with disc two, Graveyard of Honor, Takashi Mike, there's a new audio commentary by Mike's biographer, Tom Mess, there's Men of Violence, the male driving forces in Takashi Mike's cinema, uh, which is a brand new thing by Kat Allinger, a critic they regularly use for these things, which is showing, you know, basically how... Mike, the films he made beforehand built towards him eventually making this film, which, you know, is the probably the most like the the, where this takes place in Mike's filmography is probably more interesting than this film is in and of itself. There's an archival interview special featuring Mike and some of the cast members here. There's a bunch more archival stuff in here, press release interviews, a premiere special, stuff like that. But, you know, it's a decent amount of stuff and there's a booklet and what have you. It's it's a good set. And for people who, you know, if you, at least for the first film, really want to see an all-time classic, it really is, but it's not going to be for everyone. It, too, is super violent what? and disturbing and nobody that's likable in it, but it is kind of a legendary Japanese yakuza film and quite a good one whereas the remake i wouldn't say is a really good film but if you are a student of mike you can totally see i mean you could almost guess when he made it if you'd seen everything around it and be like oh i bet you it was right around here and that that kind of makes it interesting but all right are you ready to take on the big granddaddy the big uh elephant in the room let's do it Okay, we're talking about the Focus Features 10 Movie Spotlight Collection on Blu-ray. Now, we recently talked about, uh, well, God, now it's been like three shows ago because I did two with John <laughs> John Golson since then. It feels like it was only yesterday. But we talked about the same company, parent company as Focus, also put out Blumhouse stuff. And they put out a Blumhouse 10 movie set at the same time. We went by that talking about, once again, how a lot of times these come out because the studio is getting ready to, or or has with some of them, re-release them on for whatever the new format is. In this case, it's 4K. So fully expect to see a lot of these movies getting 4K releases to drop relatively soon if they haven't already. But all that being said, like we said earlier in the show, often the first 4K release is not the one to get anyway. And all these Blu-ray up for most of these films, Blu-ray was the native format when they came out anyway. So they look great as is. And it's a hell of a deal for like 70 bucks to get 10. Okay. Nine 
<laughs> focus features that vary from fucking amazing to pretty great and one that i think kind of sucks oh, but other people okay like. i'm excited Sorry. for that one yeah if you like oscar bait <laughs> movies this is the set for you that is true that is accurate if you like oscar bait movies this is the set <laughs> for you or as some might say masturbate movies uh because in the terms of uh our ma artistic masturbation but i don't agree i like almost everything in here quite a bit almost Actually, everything but quite frankly i had a moment of um awareness of my own privilege with one of these movies where like i, I oh I, I read i read you talking yeah, about that on facebook like, like, that i was, was like a surprisingly intense experience for me where i was like holy <laughs> shit i can't believe i did those things and we'll we'll, well get we're to gonna that. <laughs> we'll get to that we're gonna go by just literally the list Let's as printed on the set and start off with the one that i i chose to rewatch first here because i was like i literally haven't seen this since it came out which is sofia coppola's lost in translation and i can tell you this right now having rewatched it this is still Sofia Coppola's best film. It's kind of a low-key masterpiece. It's it's almost the AMSR of movies, but perfectly executed with Bob Bill Murray, who is a slowly fading American movie star who bafflingly is kind of presented like a James Bond type guy. You're like, really? Bill Murray? But I mean the characters you'd play, but who is in Tokyo to promote a Japanese whiskey. He doesn't speak the language. Most of them don't speak English. Uh, he's there for a period of time that seems to keep extending, but doesn't know anybody there really. And he runs into another estranged American played by Scarlett Johansson. At this point, I believe I, if I remember correctly, she was only 17, yeah, think, but she was playing slightly older in the film. And th this was not her first big movie ghost world, but this is the one that was her breakout yeah, this, role. This is when she but wasn't just an indie star exactly and so the two of them she's married freshly married to giovanni rabisi who's a very famous photographer and she's got nothing to do he's there taking pictures of models and shit and she's just literally both of them are just hanging out at the hotel bar or in their hotel rooms just doing nothing i, I uh, you know having been to tokyo i was like what are you doing leave the fucking <laughs> You're hotel doing it wrong <laughs> yeah, you are doing it wrong. But because of just sort of meeting each other, and it's not romantic, but there's always like an undercurrent of sexual tension that's definitely yeah. there. But it's not about that sexual tension. That's just what keeps it interesting to some level. They become really good friends, despite the huge age difference. And they go out and they do Tokyo together and just have a great time. But it's not... Like, it's, it's also not like, you know, the See a City road trip movie or an After Hours type movie. It's just kind of laid back and thoughtful and really works. You know, if it came out now, it would be a navel-gazy mumblecore about the ennui of life, uh, which it, it, it kind of is. But it, it's done with an artistic eye and a beauty. It, it keeps being fascinating and curious there are scenes that are funny but they're not like explicitly comedic it's just like oh that's kind of absurd and interesting and this is what you get to experience when you're in a country that you don't really know much about and it has a very different culture it is a beautiful movie i saw this in theaters at a to a free screening in college when they like hand out pamphlets to try and get people to go see it um yeah and I love the shit out of it, and I've bought it and owned it in multiple formats since then. I adore this movie. 
Tell you, this doesn't feel like the sort of movie that you go, oh, I can't wait to go back and watch this again, is. even if you really liked it. But it yes. is. It, it really is it, one of those movies that when you revisit it, you're like, God damn, this is a it's good just movie. A, it's a warm blanket movie that you put on and are just yeah. like, you know what? I know that everything's going to end up mostly okay. It's low stakes. It's just really getting to see the beauty of friendships and the beauty of experiencing new culture together. And just that's it. It's simple. And it. It won Best Original Screenplay at the Oscars. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Actor for Bill Murray. It won three Golden Globe Awards and three BAFTAs. I mean, this was a big deal. And it launched, it really launched um, Coppola's career for sure. And it definitely was the, okay, now you're an A-list star to Scarlett Johansson. Because she went from, oh, this good-looking girl that people were like, oh, yeah, you I've seen you in, I saw you in Ghost World, I've seen you in a few indie things. <laughs> I mean, I recognize you, but I don't really know you to instant overnight A-list. And then she did Eight-Legged Freaks. <laughs> was she in Eight-Legged Freaks? She was. Oh my God, I haven't seen that in a long time. Well, let's move on to the next movie in the set, which is, I think... You know, and I am not being hyperbolic here at all when I say this is one of the top 10 greatest movies ever made, in my opinion, which is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. I never get tired of returning to this film that definitely was the one that also made Charlie Kaufman go from, wow, what a cool little quirky director to, holy shit, this is an Oscar <laughs> like winning type of I, cool quirky director I think you mean writer and Charlie Kaufman uh, writer it, sorry um, writer this was a yes, and Michelle, Michelle Gondry who I thought would go on and do more stuff that would you know be of this high profile but he really doubled down on the weirdness after this and kind of crawled back inside his own indie crowd <laughs> I know yeah, whereas whereas Kaufman managed was did the same thing but Everybody pays attention to what Kaufman does. Nobody gives a shit what Michelle Gondry does anymore. I was so sad. This came out, and I was like, wow, we are seeing the birth of a major influential filmmaker who never made another movie worthwhile again, it seems like. If you've never seen this movie, and seriously, what the hell's wrong with you? You've never seen this movie. Uh, Jim Carrey playing, you know, he's played serious roles, dramatic roles a couple times in his career. And I've generally thought at least his performances were good if his choices weren't always great. I mean, the only other one I'd say, yes, you must see with Carrey in a dramatic role or somewhat dramatic role is Man The Truman Moon. Show. Yeah, Man of the Moon is, is good, but I don't think it's That's great. Okay. I, I prefer Truman Show as well. I just honestly expected it was right up your alley. I really like it. It's just not, it doesn't totally work. But anyway, so this one really does. And he plays a shy guy who meets this kind of out and, and, and very like, I mean, there's always those people like, no, no, she's too goofy to be and quirky and, and great to be real. So she's a manic pixie dream girl. I'm like, dude, I knew tons of girls just like her. <laughs> I don't know. You know, those are real people. You don't get to just go write that off entirely because that's a thing dudes are attracted to. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Rant over. <laughs> but sorry. But so, it, and that is uh, Kate Winslet. And so they, we find that they had been dating and they separated. And this whole film, the bulk of this film takes place with him uh, finding him that she went through a memory erasing uh, procedure and or and that, I'm sorry, he went through a memory, memory erasing uh, procedure and he's trying as it's happening. He changes his mind and, and is trying to through his head running through the memories of their relationship in reverse. Keep those memories from disappearing, which is 
a fascinating well way to show a, like a backwards love story. And honestly, I found this movie touching and delightful and visually stunning and performances were just 10 out of 10. Yeah. I can't think of anything I don't love about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. This is one of those few movies that's next to flawless. Like, I, I can't think of an issue with it. Uh, there's a, there's so much depth to it. Like, you could go scene by scene and talk about how the character dynamics shift and even, like, the very ending sequence. They do this little visual trick, which is such a small thing, but it it calls into question the entire film and what it means and adds so many layers of nuance to it. This is a wonderful movie. Absolutely worth it. This is the get out of the focus feature set to me. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. This is the strongest point. There's plenty of strong points. Like I think this is the better set than the Blumhouse set overall. Uh, Like many more, much better. You should have this in your collection movies. But yeah, this is even so the standout. And this also has Kirsten Dunst in it, Mark Ruffalo, Elijah Wood, Tom Wilkinson, Jane Addams, David Cross. I mean, it's got a huge cast as well, though a lot of them didn't really get better known until well after this film. But yeah, I call this a, an essential own one way or the other. But let's, like I said, we can't spend too much time on a 10 movie set. So we'll move on to the next one, which is the one you were referencing earlier, which is Brokeback Mountain. Because when Aaron, I think when you first saw this one, you were like, yeah, I don't get it. And this time when you watched you're like oh my god i'm yeah, gay oh, <laughs> a little bit um <laughs> yeah like i i, I not that there's anything I, wrong with i saw that. this either in high school or college i don't remember which but at the time it was just like okay you know what this is the gay cowboy movie like that's how south park made fun of it and yeah. every I, I remember going to see it and i remember being really disappointed because it's it's not really a romance and it, they never and, eat pudding and, uh, uh, and, and I wanted to be that romantic story, and that's not really what Ang Lee is doing here, because I didn't know this was Ang Lee, and I didn't know what that meant, uh, Mr. Searing Drama. This isn't a romance movie. This is about two men in the 60s, uh, I want to say, or maybe even before that. It, 1963. Okay. Uh, in the 60s in America, when, you know, it's probably not a fun time to be a gay man. Um, and they're ranchers. One of them played by Jake Gyllenhaal is this boisterous, loud, charismatic character. And the other one played by, and I, oh my God, I just, Heath Ledger. (laughs) I'm like, come on, dude, come on. Um, you got this. (laughs) One of them played by Heath Ledger is a man so beaten down and restrained and just defeated that he almost can't acknowledge that he exists as a human or like that he has feelings. And so in, instead of just being a movie about two men falling in love, which is what I thought it was then it, it, it tracks them as they spend time together and find this spark and yes, indeed feel a great affection for each other, even love, but they also know that they can't be together. Uh, Heath Ledger can't, imagine that he can find any kind of joy or happiness in the world and jake gyllenhaal you know wants to go find a way to be together uh and Mm. it it tracks them over i want to say like 20 years basically where they're meeting every few years for a tryst on brokeback mountain and it's that it's that little drop of pleasure that keeps them going as they both get married they have children and and it, it it comes to a an unfortunately tragic end that that yeah. there's no way around it. It's a hard hit because this movie, 
it, it is a movie more about what it is to be a gay man in a time that you can't be true to yourself than it is about falling in love. And that that's a hard story to watch sometimes. But yeah, it, it's not like one of those like, oh, it was this forbidden romance. It's like yeah, you, I heard some people picture it like it was going to be like a, a a bodice ripper, but for gay men. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, oh, no. the forbidden love, but it's so hot. And like, no, this whole movie is very sad all the way through. And these two men, it's not about sex. This movie, it is about like a love that dares not speak its name in this particular time. And these two hard cowboys, no pun intended. Seriously. I did not mean it that way, but who, who do in fact have real love for each other, but know that it can't ever come to anything. And so, you know, the the event we were talking about, I, I, a long time ago, whenever this originally came out, I distinctly had this convert. I have this memory of a conversation I had uh, with a family member of my then girlfriend, now wife. Uh, so I didn't lose her because of this, uh, where I proceeded to tell her gay family member. Yeah, I didn't really think it was that good of a movie. It wasn't very romantic. I just didn't see oh, the point Jesus. of it. And he's telling me like about how this pure love exists in this film and how beautiful it is. <laughs> and I'm just like, that's nah, not very romantic. Fuck this movie. So my opinion on it has very much turned around. This was a beautiful film. You should watch it. It's it's powerful and painful. Uh, and, and I agree. And lie, I've been watching YouTube clips of various scenes from it for like the last week straight. <laughs> it's incredibly well shot. Like, wow. So well shot. Incredibly deeply acted. And it's also sympathetic to the actresses, the characters playing the wives who are, you know, I mean, caught in loveless marriages, essentially. Michelle Williams and Anne Hathaway. They're both dealt with with real I'm, emotion and sympathy, which I think is in a way you would not expect yeah. for this type of movie at all. Uh it's great movie. It's a great movie, and it's got one of the most memorable soundtracks like of any movie from this decade. Yeah, right. I've, 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 it's the one that's kind of convinced me that I need to go watch other Ang Lee movies because I've seen this. You should. I've seen the Hulk, which I'm not going to lie, I kind of dig. Uh, not, I've, but not one of the no, stronger ones. I've seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and then yeah. Gemini Man, the one he just came out with. That's it. That's it. Like, oh, uh, watch the ice yes, storm. Uh, that's the next yeah. on my list. <laughs> yeah, that's really good. All right, well, let's move on to the next movie in this, which is uh, one of two films by director Joe Wright. This one being his directorial debut in 2005, Pride and Prejudice, based, of course, on Jane Austen's novel of the same name, the much adapted Jane Austen. Kira Knightley here, indefinitely a breakout star-making turn here plays the lead role of Elizabeth Bennett, while Matthew McFadden, who was not as successful with his career (laughs) afterwards, uh, plays Mr. Darcy. I will say, like, I do like Jane Austen a lot, and I do like Joe Wright a lot. I'm a big fan of Joe Wright and his films. Pan wasn't that great, but you know what I mean, generally speaking. Uh, This is a great adaptation. It's nowhere near as good as the British miniseries one with Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy. That is still the defining adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, as far as I'm concerned. And if I was to recommend one, I'd be like, that's the one you want to watch. Colin Firth is the guy who's born to play that role. But this is nonetheless 
really good and has a fantastic cast of people. Donald Sutherland, Brenda Blethyn, Tom Hollander, Rosamund Pike, Carrie Mulligan, Jenna Malone, Tallulah Riley, Judy Dench, Simon Woods, Rupert Friend, Cornelius Booth. I mean, it's, it's a huge cast and I really totally dug I mean, I think it's hard to fuck up Pride and Prejudice anyway. It's, a, it's one of the all-time greatest drawing room, like, romances. I, I know that sounds weird. Like, people are like, I don't care about drawing room romances, Chris. Shut up. Why aren't you talking about Star Wars or, or people's faces being ripped off? But, you know, this it's a really, really good romantic film with a lot of comedy in it, even. And I highly recommend this version, but... As, you know. as someone who aggressively dislikes drawing room romances and can't stand most Jane Austen movies uh, and actually has mixed feelings on Joe Wright as a filmmaker, I really like a couple of his movies and I, I really don't like one that we're going to be talking about in a few minutes. Uh, um, but That was my favorite film of the year. It came I, out. <laughs> I really dug this movie. Um, I think in large part to the cast and also Joe Wright. Uh, he shoots this movie without a lot of pomp and circumstance. He he brings with it this roving camera that kind of shifts in and out of rooms. And more so than any other adaptation of this story or this genre of story I've seen before, made these feel like real locations. Uh, like, like there's a hmm. sequence where they follow, and it's not Catherine Zeta-Jones, and you just said her name, but I can't think of her name. Um, Which the Kira Knightley follows her going uh, into and around her house. It's like the, it's the introduction to the estates and all of the characters. And there's a part where the camera just kind of pulls away from her and goes into the house and we see some other characters. And it's the first time I've watched one of these movies where I really understood the geography of the location. And it wasn't just a bunch of gaudy overdone rooms uh, where we're shooting for the location, not the characters. Yeah, and, and the dance sequences, which I was freaking out to you over Facebook chat about the dance sequences in this movie, because he shoots them all in one take with long lenses as people are having conversations and they're swapping partners and they're just like going in and out of conversations as they'll be dancing with him and then they'll break up and stop and they don't cut. And I, I know there are ways to explain how they shot it. And yes, because they use long lenses, they can have more space and it looks a lot more intense than it is. But that shit was like watching a Jackie Chan Kung Fu fight. Like, I don't just it blew my mind the way they I mean, had that having, conversation and shot it. Having that scene not shot as well as this is. I think Joe Wright is a master lensman, but uh, but that sequence for these drawing room films is 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 like the guy walking away slowly from an explosion yeah. is for action films. I was, you know, it's like it's in all of them. <laughs> the way they did it, my mind's melted. I I, I was into it. Uh, I haven't seen it done as effectively. That's it. <laughs> but but yeah, I do highly recommend this one. Like I said, and this is one that even if you don't, even if you normally don't like this sort of thing, this is a really good one and will suck you in. I once again still recommend the miniseries. Colin Firth kicks ass in it, but. The next one is, in fact, the other Joe Wright film here, which is Atonement. This is a few years later in 2007, uh, starring James McAvoy, Keira Knightley again. A very early film and and her breakout film role for Saoirse Ronan. Yep. 
Benedict Cumberbatch, who I totally forgot was in this thing, who still, it took a couple years before people knew who he was after this. And Vanessa Redgrave, based on a 2001 novel, although it feels like it's based on something written much before there. It won an Oscar for Best Original Score and was nominated for six others, including Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress for Ronan. They got 14 nominations at the BAFTA uh, and one Golden Globe Award for Best Dramatic Picture. I This was my favorite movie the year it came out, which sounds really un-Chris. But, man, I really dug the way this film made you question yourself and your own feelings about the characters in it so consistently. Uh, it's 1935 England. Saoirse Ronan is for the first part of it, kind of the primary character here where she is, lives as part of a wealthy family. Her older sister, Kira Knightley lives there as well. The, the housekeeper's son is Kira Knightley, not Kira Knightley, is James McAvoy, who of course at this point was like in his like twenties and was like, just startlingly good looking, basically. So you're like rich girl falling for poor guy. Obviously there's something going on reluctantly almost between her and Keira Knightley, but Cersei Ronan has like a oh, older guy crush on him. There's an issue that happens where someone is attacked and raped in this big gathering and Cersei decides, well, fuck that guy for not choosing me. I'm going to say it was him. And a lot of it has to do the rest of this film and what happened as it plays out and we follow what happened to him afterwards, what happened to Keira Knightley afterwards, what happened eventually to Sergio afterwards, watching how this one decision drastically changed all of their lives and not for the better for everyone involved and all of the guilt. The title's Atonement, and it is about someone trying to atone for something that you can never really ever atone for, despite the fact it was from the somewhat innocent mind of a 13-year-old girl who didn't really understand the implications of what she was doing. I think this is a beautiful, well-made movie that, by all accounts, I should really love. Um, it's up... <laughs> you don't have to apologize for not liking it, this film. It, it, no, it, it is up my alley. Like, this is the kind of movie that if I told someone, yeah, yeah, no, that, that's like one of my favorite movies, they would go, okay, like that, that, that tracks. I can see that. Um, like, I want to like it. I really do. But there is, and I, I, I bet you probably know where I'm going. There's a shift towards the end that from a storytelling standpoint, like, I just can't go with it. And, and it, it pulls me so hard out of the story when they do it, that it kills the rest of the movie for me. It's like, it's kind of like Daybreakers, but in the Oscar prestige movie where I am with 98% of that movie, but the 2% that kills it for me kills it so hard that it, it brings down the rest of the story for me. Really? I mean, are you talking about kind of the epilogue yeah. where it's like, okay, see, that's for me what may escalated this past Oscar fair to, wow, this is a movie I'm going to come back yeah. and, and enjoy again and again. I thought that was a beautiful topper to everything that recontextualized everything in the movie in a way that was super neat. I get that. I get it. It just, I, I couldn't get past it as, as an audience member. It, it, it hurt Damn. too much. <laughs> well, we'll move on to one that I don't think anybody was hurt for, except for maybe people were expecting or hoping that this Coen brothers movie burn after reading would be the best Coen brothers movie yet. Cause it's no. not, but it's also nowhere near the the worst or the bottom this one hangs firmly in the middle of it, coen brothers it's films. a fun small little them fucking around movie like like that's yeah. it 
so John Malkovich is a dickhead who works at the CIA, who's who's secretly a drunk and but not the sloppy kind, the angry kind. Who's like, well, fuck that. I'm going to write a memoir about working at the CIA and we'll see how dare they. And he's married to Tilda Swinton uh, when she's oh, he he got fired. OK, uh, so I'm going to file for divorce because I'm actually having an affair with George Clooney, who is a also married U.S. Marshal, who is who is who's playing kind of like a more realistic version of his goofy character in every other Coen Brothers movie, because he's by far the most absurd character. He's somebody of, going through his midlife crisis, basically, yeah, and just like, yeah. I'm just going to have sex with as many things as I can. And all I think about is sex now because I probably got married way too young. And now that's just who I am. I'm just going to fuck yes. everything I can. That's his entire character. Oh, so and he's paranoid. Tilda, <laughs> yes. And Tilda Swinton's character uh, on the vice of her lawyer says, we'll go onto his computer, just copy everything onto a disc, which includes the first draft of his memoir, which she doesn't even realize. Uh, but the lawyer accidentally leaves the CD. Remember when we used to like carry things mm-hmm. on CDs? But uh, on the locker room floor of a local gym, Hard Bodies, where there works Francis McDormand and Brad Pitt, neither one of which is bright, like, at all. No one's real bright in this film except for Balkovich, and he's a dick. <laughs> so she's like, oh, we're going to find out who this belongs to. And clearly, when you read this, this is like giving away CIA secrets so we can blackmail these people for a lot of money because I need cosmetic surgery. All right. So it's about it's one of those Coen Brothers movies about a bunch of really shallow, terrible people, but that are hysterically shallow and terrible if you are able to look at that sort of people. I know people who are like, if they're just bad people, I, I can't do it. I can't watch oh. it. I, I don't like it. And I find I find all these characters very funny. I did have a problem with this film that it, it was sort of right when the Coen brothers first started doing that thing. Like, what are, who needs an ending yeah, anyway? Yeah, it was, it was one of those films where you're like, wait, what? You can't just go, oh, we're done. We just we just realized we were done. We didn't really have a good ending, so we're just not going to have an ending. Like, fuck you. I, I, I had that episode. <laughs> I originally, when I saw this, this was, yeah, I think this was their movie post No Country for Old Men. I want to say it was yeah, like so that, too. which is holy shit, and then to this. So I was one of those people went in expecting to be just blown away. I... I didn't quite hate this movie when I first saw it. And rewatching it again, uh, I was able to go in going like, okay, I know what this is. And got a lot more enjoyment out of this movie that's basically a little domino effect of the Coens just like, okay, here's this one stupid thing that happened. And we are going to track the way this one stupid decision rippled out and did all this stuff. And it's in yeah. the format of the director of the CIA – uh, the U.S. branch, and one of his guys, uh, who's kind of mid-level, sitting there going, holy shit, can you, okay, all this, these stupid people are doing this weird shit, we don't really know why they're doing it, but they're doing yeah. these things, and we don't think any of it really matters, but we're just going to watch, and that's yeah. the movie, it's them watching until this little domino effect finally spools out, and yeah, and they're like, thank God that's over. Yeah, so it's, it's a really slight, <laughs> small movie that's just kind of about watching dumb people kill themselves on accident, basically. <laughs> 
Uh, also featuring Richard Jenkins as the boss at the gym who's secretly in love or not so secretly to the audience uh, with Francis McDormand's character. Why is anybody's guess? And J.K. Simmons as the CIA head guy dealer who's perfect casting yes. for him at this point before he broke super big. But yeah, I mean, it's not essential watching or anything, but it's, it's definitely an enjoyable little Cohen film that's worth seeing. Uh, next one on the set is Moonrise Kingdom. This was the 2012 Wes Anderson entry here that was written by him and Roman uh, Coppola, with, of course, as always, a fantastic cast. Bruce Willis, Edward Norton, Bill Murray, Francis McDormand, Tilda Swinton, Jason Schwartzman, Bob Balaban, Harvey Keitel. I mean... I've been shocked by how much results varied on this one because this is actually one of my very favorite Wes Anderson films. Same here. It's like in my my top three, and a lot of people it's in their bottom, yeah. like like absolute worst one by and him. Like, but it was nominated for best original screenplay and the Golden Globe for best musical or comedy. And the BBC actually in 2016 called it one of the best films of the 21st century. This is my number three uh, Wes Anderson movie, and it's it's him making his and I put this in quotes like children's movie uh it's all about children and the weird adventures they get into and it basically just tracks this uh an orphan an, an orphan boy who he is a he's got some issues he's had a rough life and he decides to run away on this small like five mile wide island uh with a local girl and it's the ensuing chaos as people try and find them. And while this is going on, a record-breaking history in the making storm rolls in and basically wipes away half the island. And so it starts as this uh, kind of rescue movie that morphs into this surviving the storm movie, all done with the quirky, weird theatrical style of Wes Anderson. I dig it. Yeah, no, me too. And there's a lot of neat performances in this from actors. There always are in Wes Anderson films. But, you know, this was kind of the last good Bruce Willis film, I would say. Yeah, no, no, I agree with you. You're right. (laughs) And it's a great performance by Willis, who's playing one of the lead roles here. He's terrific in this. But it really is the last. It was right before he was like, you know what? I'm tired of actually having to, you know, work at my job. I will just take a million dollars a day to show up at movies that 50 Cent always wanted to make, you know, (laughs) instead of working with real directors. I I think this is tremendous and I really recommend it. And if you were one of those people who saw it initially and didn't like it in the theater, go back and give it another try. I get it. Wes, I beg of you. Wes Anderson is a unique Unless you flavor, don't just don't like, you know? Yeah, unless you just don't like Wes and, Anderson, and I, period. I get a lot of people which I can, it. I do, I do. Yeah. But I love his movies and I adore this one. I do too. I, I'm a huge, shameless Anderson fan. I, I've only not seen one of his films, I, I, The Darjeeling Express, which seems to be universally thought of as the worst. But even so, okay. most of his fans I know are still like, yeah, but it's totally worth watching. I've just never got around to watching it. <laughs> but Moonrise Kingdom is definitely not at the bottom of the list. Uh, if you've been hearing other people say that and avoided it, you've made a mistake. Yeah, wrong. Moonrise Kingdom is is terrific. Now we'll move on to The Theory of Everything, which was a 2014 release directed by James Marsh. This was the life of a young Stephen Hawking before he went into the wheelchair, who, of course, was an absolute fucking genius and played here by the always mildly annoying Eddie Redmayne. Sorry, I know some people love Eddie Redmayne. I've got to the point I'm like, I just I gave you every chance and I don't think you're a terrible actor, but 
There's something about you that gets on my nerves. <laughs> I've, I, uh, that's fair. I've liked him in one movie ever, and it was not one in which he put in a good performance. That's fair. No, but I do genuinely like this movie. I just kind of wish it wasn't so determined to be like an Oscar nominated yeah. film because at its weakest, it's really flexing hard to be one of those kind of movies. And I'm like, you know, it would have been more interesting if you had gotten a, a much more ballsy director than Marsh. And I don't mind James Marsh at all. I think he's a good director, but if you gotten somebody that was like, you know, like your Michelle Gondry's or what have you, or like, you know, this is about a fucking genius. Like I would have liked to have seen a little more of a, the film trying to be a little bit more outside the box for a guy who was completely outside the box. I'm not going to lie. This is the one that I mentioned earlier that I can't really remember much. I saw this when mm. it originally came out. I saw it again now. Me too. And I remember you already forgot. I, I already <laughs> forgot it. Uh, like I, I remember it's okay. It's fine. It's very yeah. Oscar baity. It's not quite yeah. as egregious as like green book or one of those, but like this no. is still very eye rollingly predictable. Uh, there's not a single you... beat that you're not going to yeah. do, but, but like if, if you're into that kind of movie, it's not, it's not bad. It's just, it's just there. I think it's, I think it's a great example of that kind of movie. It's a movie your mom and your grandmother, they oh, yeah. love the shit out of this movie, you know, and it, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's fine. You know, I, when I first saw this, I was like, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I'm really glad I saw it. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but I'm glad I saw it. Um, I wish it had been more daring Agreed. is the worst thing I can say about it. But it also stars Felicity Jones as Jane Hawking, Charlie Cox, David Thewlis, Emily Watson, uh, you know, a bunch of recognizable from television British stars. They even got Stephen Hawking to do his own computerized voice for here, which I thought was obviously a completely unnecessary thing to do because it sounds the same no matter who's talking in, uh, from it. But cool. Or keyboarding it, if you will. But, you know, whatever. This is one of the weaker spots in the set, if only that it's kind of forgettable. It's not terrible. It's just, it's fine. You'll like it, but you won't want to go back and rewatch it, probably. Much like On the Basis of Sex, the next film in here, which came out in 2018. It has, once again, Felicity Jones playing Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is obviously a legend, the dear departed Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's directed by Mimi Letter. It co-stars Army Hammer as her very loving husband, like a deeply affectionate, loving husband. Justin Thoreau, Jack Rayner, Kaylee Sp uh, Spaney, Sam Waterston, and Kathy Bates. It's got great performances across the board. And ultimately, it's another film you go, yeah, All right. I mean, I get it. I, I, I think it's good. I think it's just. Why isn't it better? There are like two or three things that this movie does well. One of them is it does a good job of showing the sexism that came at her, even from the people who helped her, um, yeah. which usually movies don't do that with this kind of film. There's, you know, the, the giant assholes who are usually racist because people don't make movies <laughs> about sexism anywhere near enough. Um, but or they're giant sexist assholes or they're the pure, pristine, wonderful husband character. You know, um, in this case, there is there is that. But the ones who are kind of the villains of the movie are the ones who don't see themselves as sexist and are like, no, no, I'm not sexist. I'm trying to empower women. And the the one of the most sexist characters in the movie, the ones who is explicitly sexist, is like one of the people trying to help her the most and is trying to give her legitimacy in the scene. And I think that was a good idea. Uh, the other thing it does, quite frankly, and this may have been because I watched this right after she died, is that it fucking ends with a slow-mo long shot of Ruth Bader Ginsburg walking 
into uh, into the government. The Supreme Court. Just oh my yeah. god, I was bawling at that. Oh, dude, no, this <laughs> that's the one part of this whole movie that finally gets yeah. you is when it switches to the real Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And I watched this well before she died, and uh, it still really got me. And part of that is because she was really having that was when she was having a moment, but she was just a little bit past yeah. the moment in terms of her suddenly becoming the superstar. And that was because of the year before. They put out this documentary that is so much better than this movie called The Notorious RBG that you still you absolutely should watch over if over this movie. Do it. Yes. Watch the documentary. It's incredibly well made. You get so much of a better picture of who this woman was. This is more of a slice of her life, you know, and that one is like this is her whole story. And it really you get a much better feel for it. And it's just a better made film. It, this is fine. It's Oscar bait. But it's an Oscar bait movie. It's just Yay for them making Oscar bait movies about sexism and women's fight for equality because there aren't enough of those. That's it. It's acceptable. You know, it's it's fine. It's It's good. It's fine. You're not going to want to go back and revisit it. The last one in the set is the only one I actively dislike. (laughs) It's it's Harriet, directed by Casey Lemons. Um, Look, people brought this out like uh, talking about this as like one of the great films of the year it came out in the way of like we're gonna get in trouble if we don't say that right because it's not it's fucking terrible right. i'm sorry man i like a lot of the people involved in here i like cynthia arrivo quite a bit in here i love leslie odom jr i love janelle monet but this is like an x-man origin movie about harriet tubman and motherfucker it's harriet tubman you don't need to fucking like make the focus of her life about that. Oh, she had she clearly had psychic powers. Well, though she didn't. It, she was Harriet Tubman. She didn't need mutant abilities. Just fucking tell her story. Yeah, I th- I think that this was a good idea and it could have been a good movie that I th- I thought ended up being poorly made. Like I, yeah. I love the story. I like Harriet Tubman is a fucking legend and oh my God, yeah. there needs to be a badass action movie franchise about Harriet Tubman. Uh, <laughs> Why not? I would watch the shit out of that. Like I don't want Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter. I want Harriet Tubman no. slave freer. No, no. Um, what you want is the fast and the furious movie. They have a time travel one where they accidentally t- travel all back in time in their muscle cars. But then the end of the movie, Harriet Tubman decides to come uh, with them into the future and becomes the latest member of the I group. would watch the fuck out of that so hard you yeah. have no and idea Cynthia Revo can play her again I'm fine like, with that she was great even, even <laughs> if you look past the fact that yes Harriet Tubman was given special powers by God um, it still it still ends by going and you know what after this she was a total badass and I was just like, going, like <laughs> yeah. I wanted to see that like show me all of yeah. that don't uh, th- this is okay I I don't hate it the way you did, but it's not a great movie. I know because I'm like weirdly kind of a Harriet Tubman fanboy. I know that sounds ridiculous, but like she was amazing. Like her whole life was awesome from like start to finish. You're like, Jesus Christ. There are very, very few people in history who were as much and consistently a badass like Harriet Tubman did. The crazy shit she did, like dot, 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 and lived. And this movie is like, yeah, we should probably take this one thing that was more of like a rumor 
and make it the backbone of the whole story. Like, you don't need to do that. It's Harriet Tubman. She really did a lot of amazing <laughs> shit. You're like, no, let's make it up. I was expecting, like, like a racist guy to suddenly be, like, Magneto or some shit. I don't know. I was Actually, like, okay. I would have liked the movie more if, if the racist <laughs> developed superpowers, too, and it was, like, this low-key uh, superhero movie with Harriet Tubman. <laughs> There's a point where I was like, why not? Jesus Christ. Exactly. Anyway. At least then it would have been weird. So that's that set, the Focus Feature set, which I definitely think is much better than it's not. Yes. Uh, if you're going to uh, buy there's... either Focus Features or Blumhouse, which, why would that be the decision you're making? Go with Focus Features. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, our last thing that we're going to talk about here is something a lot of people who are fans of game of thrones already basically have most of they just have it on blu-ray well they finally and they've only previously put out 4k the first season they put out and they put out the last season in 4k oh. which is odd but everyone's like well they'll get around to it well, instead they're like you know what fuck it we'll just wait and we'll put it out all uh in one big ass like box set here if you've got the the camera the, i've actually got it here man this thing retails for like 200 bucks right and it's got over 15 hours of bonus features, the bulk of which is stuff that was on the previous sets. They've they've relegated a lot of it to or uh, the new stuff which, onto, strangely, the only Blu-ray in the which, whole which set. Which we're calling out, though, those previous sets were pretty stacked. They were. No, they're absolutely loaded down with, with bonus features, like so much. And this one... First off, the the obviously the 4Ks like the transfers start to look better as the seasons go along because of the quality they were shooting on higher quality as it went along. So like the like halfway point of the show on, it starts looking fantastic. And the last season, the only way to watch what was it, the battle of whatever, the one that was all gray and everyone was complaining because you couldn't see anything. The thing. Yeah, like it looked like shit trying to watch it on HBO. Watch on here, you're like, oh, I see what they were trying to do. They just didn't take into account that no one actually had 4K players. <laughs> so th th this is the way that you're going to go, oh, actually, that was pretty good after all. And I know, I know. Like, it'd be like, but it didn't, I didn't like the way it ended. Well, like, you know what? Fucking hey. look at it. Even at like your biggest little bitches out there, there were five incredibly solid seasons of television that did things you've never seen anything like it before and three mixed back it was one you know that, admittedly that that last one was pretty rough but but I, it, even it, then it has some great has some episodes great in, it. in it that's some wonderful yes stuff. like th that's the thing this show is three quarters one of the greatest television shows that have ever been made in the history of the world and the other quarter yeah. is mixed some of those lows yeah. are pretty low and then some of them I mean, are I, the entire episode that happens before the battle which may be my favorite episode of the entire series I 100% blame George R.R. R. Martin, the writer of the original books, because he knew what he was doing when he signed these contracts. He made an agreement to finish these fucking books. And clearly this motherfucker, like Douglas Adams, is just sitting in the bathtub going, well, I got the money now. Why I, do I need to write it? I actually disagree you know? completely. I, I think okay. this is a clear situation, which has happened so many times before of creators who get into a project, they start working on it and it's not that they don't have an idea. It's that they get burnt out. You don't realize you're going to be doing that shit for a decade. And when you get to the <laughs> end of it, you just, you just want it to be done and, and, and you stop focusing as much on that. And I think that's what killed it. I agree with you in the sense that they wanted to wrap it up towards the end because they didn't have a 
a fucking guiding hand anymore. They're like, oh yeah, okay, now figure it out. Like HBO going, well, it looks like George isn't going to finish the book, so I guess y'all are going to have to figure out something. And they're like, we don't have any fucking idea what the hell George was going to do here. You know? And no one does. He still hasn't put out the goddamn last book or two books. Who knows? Right? Like, all right, so what are they supposed to do? They wanted to get the fuck out of there. They're like, Jesus Christ, this is... This is lame because now we're making up shit that may not even resemble the books and everyone's going to end up judging us versus the books. And it's clear that that kind of lost their passion and they were rushing it to get out of there. So I kind of blame George Martin because I'm like, dude, you had more than enough time to finish that fucking book, you know, and you had a contract. I don't tell you, that's my opinion here, but they also should have been, they should have just gone, you know what? We're not going to do the show for three years. Exactly. You know, we're going to come back in three years and, and tell George we're doing this. So you might want to write this into the next, the last book, which I mean, seriously or doubt you've even started. Take a break, take a year off, go work on something else for a year and make a movie, something. Just just take the time to get your creative juices flowing, make it good instead of make it on time. Yeah. Now, the one thing about this set, other than the fact that, like, I mean, Game of Thrones was a gorgeous looking show with some of the highest quality special effects ever seen in television. I think the only thing that's ever come close or is comparable is The Mandalorian with the level of, like, high quality, theatrical quality special effects in it and sets and costumes and just production in general. But they do this thing in here that is a was the coolest way to have a rap party I've ever seen where it's only available in this set and it was, and they wrapped in Ireland. And so everyone who worked on the show was invited to a final sort of dinner and drinks party with Conan O'Brien hosting the festivities on stage and him going through like each group of people and, and having different people on stage together. And everybody is gradually getting more and more drunk. And it's like about two hours long. Conan O'Brien has does a great job of feeling right at home, being a huge fanboy, knowing how to make all of this work, but nothing ever feels artificial or forced. And at the end, literally every last one of them is crying, weeping openly and hugging each other. And you realize everyone in the audience, that wasn't like audience who bought tickets. That was the crew. They were just like, come on in. We're getting dinner for everybody and drinks for everybody. And this is our final wrap up and we're going to film it. And eventually we'll use it as like a bonus, but they, just had a party they threw a party for them yeah and we're like oh let's and they all tell stories of like funny shit that happened on the sets and i mean almost everybody is there there's a few people who are conspicuously missing but i think that's largely i mean not because they didn't want to be there you know but even jason momoa shows up you know and he's a riot everyone's like they were like oh uh it was really sad when jason left the show it's like yeah because his character was gone it's like no because everyone was like well that goes the only guy keeping this place funny. <laughs> like, like, there's no two ways around it. Game of Thrones changed the way television is made. Like, like, like yeah. this is one of those high water marks in the entertainment history. TV won't be the same again. No, and it's there's a lot of great things, great things that I still love that don't have terrific conclusions. I'm looking at you, Star Wars. Lost. Battlestar Galactica, so many TV shows. Like that's the thing. Like I, I know that the last season was rough, but I've seen so many shows just, just just crash and burn over the last couple of seasons or in the last episode. This is old hat, yeah. man. This is a sci-fi trope by now. <laughs> they always end bad. For my money, I'll take this ending over Battlestar Galactica any day of the week, uh, which I thought was a complete and utter put your dick in the dirt. And this one was just. Uh, I was kind of hoping for something better, but it's okay, I guess. 
you know, yeah, at worst, it was like, this is okay, I guess, but I was hoping it would be better. Like, Battlestar Galactica was like, what the fuck are you guys thinking? <laughs> and Lost was kind of like, didn't you already wrap this up a season ago? <laughs> I'll agree with you that Battlestar Galactica, I thought was a good ending until like the last four minutes. And it was one of those where yeah. the last four minutes was so bad <sighs> that I just went like, oh, fuck you. <laughs> Now, I had already given up, like, earlier in the season of that one when they went into the whole Starbuck as an angel. I was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Fair. Anyway, so. Anyways, Game of Thrones. (laughs) So we are wrapping up this episode with me and Papa Bear. And, you know, the one thing we haven't done is do our pick of the week. And I'm going to tell you, for me, it is absolutely this Game of Thrones set because it is, for one thing, like, I have all the Blu-rays. And this does not come with the Blu-rays. Let me be clear. It's just the 4K discs. I mean, look at this. I mean, yes, it's as big as my head, but all the sets are like as big as both of my arms stretched out, right? This is, if you got a 4K player and TV, this is everything, you know? All nicely compact, very convenient with some cool new bonus stuff. I'm I'm gonna just call it this week and call no, this no, the pick of the week. You're, you're not wrong. I, I, same here. Yeah, uh, it, it's one of the few shows we've waited because we had kids and life has been crazy. But it is on my wife and I's rewatch schedule. Like we're we're gonna sit down and do a front to back power through again. Yeah, I would love to have the time to do that, buddy. I really would, man. Because I, I genuinely loved Game of Thrones, and you know, it's it's an all time classic. I mean. Uh, it's funny how people like, you remember how much people bitched about the ending of the Sopranos and now nobody talks about the ending of the Sopranos being bad anymore. Yeah. Like they just remember how great that show was when the bulk of it was great and I guarantee you in a few years, Game of Thrones will be the Agreed. same way. Yeah. Anyway, that is it. We're going to leave you on that note. We'll be back soon with more because we're doing this and Aaron's already got a stack as tall as like as me of more movies to watch. So back there, if you if you're watching the video, I am pointing at the actual stack in my cabinet. (laughs) (laughs) So we'll have another one of these because Aaron watches these things like I don't even know how he finds the time. He's got like apparently I work from (laughs) 237 children and he works constantly. I I work from home and a TV in my office. It's it's pretty easy to do as long as they're in English. The the, Whenever you give me a lot of foreign films, I always kind of go, oh, God damn it. Because those I have to watch at night because you, you, you can't have that on while doing anything else. That's totally fair. Well, anyway, we'll be back soon Ooh. with more digital noise. Ciao. Join us, won't you? <laughs>